used to be four ordinary teenagers. Everybody, welcome to a super extra special edition of Saturday Morning Tuesdays, that animated podcast about real cartoons. I'm Andy. I'm Austin. Oh, and I'm Rory. And today we have a totally off-brand, different, crazy episode. We managed to, well, Austin really managed to get us a big, cool, special guest today. <laughs> Thanks to our meteoric rise to stardom, some <laughs> avenues are opening up for us that previously had been shut as tightly as um, a turtle in his shell. <laughs> so, yeah, let me let me say a little bit about that. So, you know, we started this show watching Dinosaurs, and we have our one-year special coming up at the end of the summer uh, where we kind of go back and look at the original shows that we watched, and one of those was Dinosaurs. And I thought for that it'd be kind of cool if I could reach out to the creator, Michael Uslin. I wanted to ask him some questions because we did have all these questions about the show and wondering about it, and... I was able to figure out how to get in touch with him. Um, we had our guy talk to his guy. <laughs> so that uh, that's pretty exciting. Uh, we we just recorded an interview. And uh, yeah. And, you know, our our experience with the show was we <laughs> that sh- the show is absurd. It's ridiculous. We loved it. We were confused by it. There were so many questions that we had. It was such a it was so different than anything else that we were watching. And I'm just. Uh, I don't know. We're fresh off having done done this interview, and I'm 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 still jazzed about it. So yeah, yeah. He's got a new comic coming out. Uh, uh, he's doing a relaunch of Dinosaurs uh, on August eighth. Uh, I'm not sure when you're going to be listening to this. That's but pr- probably it's this very coming soon. Wednesday. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was a great bit of timing. We didn't really know that. <laughs> we just like dinosaurs, <laughs> and so it happened to perfectly coincide. Uh, and Michael is also. I don't know if we mentioned this explicitly in the interview, but. Uh, Michael is also the producer of pretty much everything with Batman in it for the last 30 years. Uh, if you, you look at his IMDb page and it's pretty impressive and pretty, pretty Batman centric uh, and a lot of, <laughs> a lot of big movies and animated movies and shows and that kind of stuff. Uh, Michael's right there. Uh, and then his, his other show is Dinosaurs and, you know, that's fascinating. And we, we love to go into yeah, that. It, so. It's, it's a certainly an interesting quiver of two of the, uh, of two arrows, two very different arrows. <laughs> so I think without further ado, here's our interview with Michael. We used to be four ordinary teenagers until one day we met some new friends from out of town. They were called dinosaurs. My friends and I became the secret scouts, allies to these dinosaurs from outer space. So, Michael, you created a show called Dinosaurs that came out in 1987. Uh, can you just walk us through the creation of that episode of that show? I sure can. So, first of all, I was trying to figure out a way to survive until. I could get our first Batman movie made. Hmm. Right. So that's the background for it. So let, let's, let's take a big, big step back in time. <laughs> okay. Um, when I was still in my 20s, and if you'll pardon the expression, a kid in my 20s, um, I wound up 
buying the rights to Batman from DC Comics for movies, etc. And that happened on October 3rd, 1979. My partner, Ben Melnicker, and I acquired the rights. I put them in my back pocket. I shortly quit my job as a motion picture studio attorney for United Artists, which back then was one of the big, big motion picture studios, one of the majors. And not knowing anyone in Hollywood or having relatives in Hollywood, uh, went out there with Batman in my back pocket, totally convinced that the studios were going to line up at my doorstep <laughs> when they heard my vision for doing dark and serious Batman movies in an attempt to counter the horror that I had grown up with as a teenage Batman and comic book fan back in the 60s when the entire world only knew Batman as a joke. <laughs> right. They only knew him as the potbelly funny guy um, with all the pows, zaps, and whams. And while that might have been good for little kids, for a hardcore Batman fan that knew the whole history of Batman and had met Bob Kane and had met Bill Finger and had met Jerry Robinson, you know, the people who were really directly responsible for the creation of The Dark Knight as a creature of the night who stalked disturbed criminals from the shadows, um, I was pretty horrified at what, at what had been going on. So the night of the Batman TV show premiere in January 1966, I was downstairs watching this in my den, and um, I made a vow <laughs> that night, kind of <laughs> like when young Bruce Wayne once made a vow, uh, except my parents were safe upstairs in the kitchen. And um, I said, somehow, someday, someway, I'm going to show the entire world what this true Batman is, and I'm going to find a way to eliminate from the collective consciousness of the world culture, these three new words, pow, zap, and wham. <laughs> and it took me from 1966 till 1979 before I had the contacts, the experience uh, to be able to purchase the rights to Batman and then go out and try to set up these movies. So I went out to L.A., and instead of the studios lining up my doorstep, every single one of them turned me down. And they told me I was crazy, that it was the worst idea they ever heard, that you cannot possibly do serious comic book movies. You cannot ever do dark superheroes. And that I was also nuts because I wanted to make a movie out of an old TV series and nobody's ever made a movie out of an old TV series. <laughs> um, as a result of all of that, um, it took me 10 years from the time that we bought the rights to Batman till we were able to get our first movie out in June, 1989, 10 very, very, very long years. That seems so crazy, you know, just in like, just looking back at it now. I mean, it's that, that idea seems preposterous that you would have had to wait 10 years. Well, what we have to do guys is go back and put this all back in the context of the times. So when I first went out with this in 79 and into 80 and the early 80s, the people who were running Hollywood, and I'm talking about studio execs, agents, the talent pool itself, 
these were people of a different era than me. I was the young mm-hmm. Turk there. I was the kid. And they grew up in kind of the Frederick Wortham seduction of the innocent era in which at best they thought comic books were nothing more than cheap entertainment for little kids. And, and I'm, was, I'm imagining them telling you that with a thick transatlantic accent. Uh, well, <laughs> yeah, you should have been there. <laughs> it was, you know, they thought, you know, potentially these things might be harmful. Uh, they, they weren't sure about that. And every single person, including the people at a certain studio, believed that the one and only comic book property that had value to be made into a blockbuster movie was Superman. Nothing else at DC Comics, nothing else at Marvel or in the entire industry had value to become made into a big movie. And that was the atmosphere. There was no respect for the characters. There was certainly no respect for any of the creators. And that was the world in which I was moving at that time. Um, case in point, uh, I was fortunate enough a few years ago to, uh, whereby Chronicle Books in San Francisco published my memoir, The Boy Who Loved Batman. And I not only detail the story in my autobiography, but actually reprint the what was called back then Telex that Ben and I was sent by Warner Brothers, who told us at that time, don't even bother coming in. We have no interest in <laughs> Batman. Goodbye and good luck. And I'll give you one, one, just one other tale from back then, because you can't understand the dinosaur situation until you understand this part of my life. That's so fascinating. Sure. And I pitched my heart out at every studio. When I pitched at Columbia, the guy who was the head of production had been there for a long, long time. Very, very dapper, silver haired guy. And as I get done pitching for my dark and serious Batman movie, He looks at me, shakes his head, gives me a tisk tisk, and said to me, Michael, you're out of your mind. Batman will never be a successful movie because our movie, Annie, didn't do well. (laughs) We don't like orphans. Orphans are bad. (laughs) I said to him, are you talking about that little redhead girl who sings the song tomorrow? And he said, yeah. I go, well, what does that have to do with Batman? And he says, oh, come on, Michael. They're both out of the funny pages. And that was my rejection of Columbia. Mm. And it further amplifies what the establishment at that time, what their perspective was about comic books and superheroes. So um, the years start to tick by. And I'm trying to find every which way to survive, to hold on by my fingertips, to figure out how I'm going to get my bills paid, not next month, but next week or maybe tomorrow. Mm -hmm. And I'm at a point in time in life where pushing, pushing, pushing and the delays and trying to get Batman made. Um, Let me tell you something. When, When you spend what turned out to be 10 years from the time we bought the rights till the time we actually were able to get the first movie made, 10 years, you got to look deep inside yourself and ask some key questions. Like, 
is the whole world right and I'm just being stubborn? <laughs> yeah. Or am I absolutely convinced? Do I believe in myself? Do I believe in this? And everybody else is wrong. And I kept coming up with the latter answer. But that required me to figure out a way to survive till I could get Batman made. Right. So I'm at a point now where I have my first mortgage and I have my first child, my son, David. And David is uh, a little boy. And like I realized most little boys and certainly like me and all my friends when we were little, he had two passions basically from the time he could talk. He loved everything about dinosaurs and could recite the names of every dinosaur before he could recite the alphabet and uh, the, the days of the week. <laughs> yeah, I was one of those kids, too. Yes, I think we've all known a dinosaur kid or been the dinosaur boy. Yeah, Pachycephalosaurus <laughs> was one of my first words, I think. <laughs> well, and, and we lived a half hour outside of New York City. So his one and only favorite place on Earth was for me to take him to the Museum of Natural History to see the dinosaurs. Sure. And to go to, to go to the Hayden Planetarium and see the Outer Space Show, because that was his other passion, anything to do with outer space. So I was thinking, how can I create stories to tell him like a bedtime that combine dinosaurs and outer space? And I literally was shaving one morning thinking dinosaurs, outer space, dinosaurs, <laughs> outer space, dino saucers. <laughs> And I came up with this name. It's your Thomas Edison moment. <laughs> yeah, that, it was a great name. And then I go, but what the hell is it? <laughs> oh, what is dinosaurs? <laughs> and then I started to think it through creatively. And, um, and the following is what I came up with by the time I was completed, completing my shaving that morning. Earth is 93 million miles from the sun. What if there's a sister planet exactly 93 million miles from the sun, just like us, same size, and it revolves around the sun exactly the same way we do, but it's on the other side, so we've never seen it. It has never seen us. We don't know it's there. But one thing of importance happened, and that was 66 million years ago, we were struck by an asteroid that killed off all the dinosaurs on Earth. Well, that did not happen on this planet, which I am now calling Reptilon. <laughs> so the dinosaurs continue to live, have evolved another 66 million years, so that now they are walking, talking, humanoid, intelligent, uh, conquering space travel race. Intelligent unless they're bonehead. Right. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah bonehead, bonehead, not quite so much. Um, <laughs> But in terms of a backstory, they screwed up their world because they didn't buy into global warming and climate change. And as a result on, on Reptilon, they're running out of water. Um, the atmosphere is being poisoned. Their people are, and workforce are dying off. Their food supplies are now dying off. And they then discover the existence of Earth and all of its natural resources, including billions of pieces of meat. Mm. <laughs> so um, that's where it started. And then I came up with the idea of two, two races, a bad guy race of dinosaurs and a good guy race. So the bad guys I call the Tyrannos, and I'm picturing them all in hot colors like red and orange and 
And the good guys, the dinosaurs, will all be in the cool colors like blue and green. And that's where this whole thing began. And I tested the water by sitting down at night as David was falling asleep and just began spur of the moment creating stories as I went along of dinosaurs, which he really loved. And that's that's the starting point for this whole thing. And I'm sorry it took so long to give you the entire backstory, <laughs> but you really need to understand Batman in order to understand dinosaurs. No, it's fascinating. Thank you. What kind of response did you get? I mean, I'm assuming you had to pitch this idea to somebody uh, to get it produced. What Was it immediately met with positivity or? Well, um, nothing is ever as easy as it seems in Hollywood. So I knew I needed to do my homework. So I brought in my cousin, Craig Berman, who was an artist who had been trained at the Joe Kubert School. Oh, wow. Joe being a dear friend of mine and one of the great legendary artists in the history of comic books. So Craig and I sat down, I gave him my vision and described the characters. And then I said, I want each one to have a spaceship that is roughly in the shape of that particular dinosaur. Hmm. And I knew there was a toy line in this, believe me. Oh yeah. And I didn't like the I didn't like the idea of guns. Even back then, I had a thing about guns. Maybe that's because I'm such a Batman fan. Yeah. And Batman <laughs> yeah. Uh, was against guns. So I created fossilizers and devolvers, things that would be connected to dinosaur theme. And now, I, um, and I knew we go ahead. Oh, sorry. So um, you know, maybe it's it's having spent you know the last thirty years inundated in more gun culture. But to me, watching the show, one of the interesting things was how terrifying I found like being frozen forever or turned into a, a, you know, a, a cave child. This seemed much worse than death to me as, as punishments <laughs> for failure. There you go. And, and I just tested it to see how wide my son David's eyes would get when I would come up with one of these things. Yeah. And, uh, and that was really my gauge for what I was doing. So with Craig, we came up with sketches for, Every dinosaur, uh, dinosaur, every tyranno, um, every spaceship, the weaponry, the uniforms, um, the tar pits uh, set, the lava dome set, um, and whatever else we could concoct that might convince animation companies, studios, toy companies to jump on board with this thing. I then sought the advice of a mentor, somebody who had been through it all and could help me uh, in terms of trying to make my first shot in the world of animation and TV. And the guy who was very helpful to me was Stan Weston. Stan, uh, whose sons, Brad and Steve, have done incredibly well in the movie industry. Yeah, Steve Winston, yeah. Yeah, Stan, Stan put together the original Star Wars merchandising program Okay. Along with Mark Pevers at 20th Century Fox. So he was, you know, he was renowned. He was famous for the Star Wars merchandising program. But Stan had, he owned G.I. Joe and eventually sold it to Hasbro. But he owned it, you know, at the time when it was the tall doll. Yeah. Right. And uh, played that all out. Um, Stan also was a creator of Thundercats and Silverhawks. Sure. We're very familiar um, with those. We actually watched a bunch of Silverhawks a lot, not long ago. <laughs> uh, okay, great. So, so he was helpful to me in how to go about this and how best to pitch it. 
Um, I had my entire treatment, concept, Bible, all this artwork. And then I went out to pitch. And the first group I pitched to was a little group called RCA Video Productions in New York. Mm-hmm. And these guys had their own unit. We were doing some other business with them. And in fact, they transformed into a company called Lightyear Entertainment. And um, we had a great relationship with them. And they they flipped over this. So they said, okay, let us work with you on this and really go to town and get this done quickly. So Lightyear then brought in Columbia Pictures Television, which at that moment in time was owned by Coca-Cola. And the TV syndication arm was called Coca-Cola Telecommunication, oh, wow. run by a man named Herman, Herman Rush. <laughs> and his assistant was a guy my age um, who I became friends with 30 years ago, uh, a, a young man named Rick Rosen, who today is one of the principals of the super agency WME. Oh, wow. Yeah. And um, Rick and I worked in the trenches together. We went around to different TV stations and ultimately went to the big nasty television syndication convention, and we sold the thing. And we had to get to a certain level of percentage of the country covered before Columbia would give the okay to go into production. And um, through Columbia, they brought in Deke as the animation studio, which at that time was... Uh, owned and run by Andy Hayward. And doing just about everything? It, it, well, at that moment in time, I would say it was Deke, Filmation, mm, yeah. and you still had Hanna-Barbera, and probably some others I'm not thinking of offhand, but those were the principal. Um, Maybe Nelvana. Uh, yeah, Nelvana was a factor, not not to the extent that Deke was. Deke was pretty damn dominant back then. Yeah, it was huge. Under Andy... There was Robbie London, who was in charge of story and all the writing. And then Mike Maliani, who was a visionary artist and designer. And those were the two guys that um, I was working with on a day-to-day basis. And we sold it. We got the order for 65 half hours, which was beyond belief. It was amazing. 65 half hours ordered at once. Yeah. Yeah, that's nuts. And that was what allowed us to go then and do a five-year run. We did two years in syndication, two years on USA Network, and then a year on what was then called the Family Channel. And um, and had an amazing run with that five days a week. Um, it, it was awesome. It was, it was really a lot of fun. And I should add that I realized that we mu- I must have humans in this, young humans involved in the Mm -hmm. middle of all the dinosaurs. And um, I created then the Secret Scouts, which were four teenagers. Uh, David was my son, David. Of course. Mm -hmm. Sarah was my (laughs) Sarah. And I gave Mike Maliani pictures of my kids. So in 80, this was happening around 86, maybe. So David would have been six and Sarah would have been two. Ah. And I just gave Mike her pictures and let Mike figure out what they might look like when they were like 16, 17 years old or so. And that's hilarious that they're your actual kids. Okay, uh, so I the episode, because... 
the episode when they go to their house. Yeah, that's what I was going to talk about. Yeah. Are those you and is that sort of modeling your family or your house? Everything was modeling my family and my friends. Everything. <laughs> um, there's an episode that took place in Cedar Grove, which is where we live. Um, my brother's my brother is Paul. Um, my cousin is Ryan. Um, one episode, I took my my brother's two daughters, my nieces Cassie and Samantha. I got them into the show. Um, I think my mom and my dad popped up somewhere along the way. Um, it, it was a family affair, and was just having the best time. And I was so damn lucky because Robbie London brought in Diane Duane to be our story editor. And I got to work with Diane literally day by day by day in the trenches. And she would go on to become a New York Times bestselling author. Uh, her fantasy novels and science fiction novels are amazing. Um, she's become so well-known uh, in, in those circles. Mm-hmm. And we worked together and assembled a team of writers including some of my friends from comic books like Len Wein, yeah. uh, a lot of uh, Diane's friends, Bryn Stevens she brought in, and, and Bryn took on a more and more important role as things went on. Um, I'm telling you, it was really a fun family atmosphere of us all working together to do this with the deadlines being ridiculous. I was about um, to ask, uh, with when you get an order like 65 episodes, is that, I mean, that seems atypical and I'm assuming that that means that they wanted all of them within like a normal, like a normal season of, of production or was that an, a sort of an insurmountable amount? I mean, it wasn't obviously you got it done, but did it seem too much? Yeah, it was kind of like, okay, guys, we'll give you an order for 65 episodes, but you know, can you do it in three weeks? <laughs> <laughs> now the pressure was crazy. And Mike, I remember he had to go to Korea and you know, he, because he had to watch quality control and there were a lot of reshoots that had to be done. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, everybody was under incredible pressure uh, to get these done and out on time. And we did a three-minute promo reel where um, – do you remember the song from Top Gun, Danger Zone? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Very very much so, yeah. Okay. <laughs> that, was the, that was the music we purloined. And <laughs> we, we did a – I can kind of see that, to the, comparing that to the theme song. Totally. Oh, I can totally see the correlation between that and the theme song. Oh, yeah. yeah. And it, it worked great. And, and that three-minute promo, animated promo, is what we used to sell the show, um, along with some visual booklets and materials that Coca-Cola Telecommunications prepared for all the TV stations and everyone like that. And then Les Borden was the head of um, Columbia Merchandising, and Les then took and ran with the um, ran with the merchandise and brought in. I'm trying. I think it was Galoob. It was Galoob. Yeah, it was Galoob. I've I've seen some of these prototypes. I have a set of them in porcelain. Oh, so cool! Mm-hmm. And at the last minute, something went awry, and I'm trying to remember now what it was. But the toy line at the last minute got canceled and the toys that were made and the prototypes you can see on the internet, you know, there's about two dozen sites on the internet devoted to dinosaurs, which is pretty cool. Sure. Yeah. We found some of them. Yeah. In the world of toys, those things are now like the Holy grail. They're huge. And, yeah. And, and worth fortunes like you only see with golden age comic books. It, 
and original art. It, it, it is really something. Yeah. And our, uh, our, our producer just messaged us and told us that he found one for like 450 bucks on eBay just now. That's crazy. That's a bargain. Grab it. Yeah, <laughs> I know. Right. That's insane. <laughs> uh, all right. So I have a couple questions from when you were telling your Batman story. If we can go, dial back in time for a second. Um, you mentioned, you know, loving this this uh, darker version of Batman and this whole time you're struggling to tell this story uh, motion picture wise, uh, it seems like that's sort of part of when Batman in the comics became an incredibly dark or overtly very dark with the Frank Miller runs and Alan Moore and things like that. Did you feel like they were stepping on your toes or, or helping you kind of pave the way? Oh, hell no. It was, it was helping. Um, so we had been working since 1979 to get the Batman movie done. Mm-hmm. And then I'm going to do one critically important way that dinosaurs enabled Batman to actually happen. Great. Um, we were struggling and the delays year after year and trying to get the enthusiasm from everyone. And in ni- around 1986, a young genius. Now guys, I've been in the business 43 years <laughs> And I don't use mm-hmm. that term lightly. In 43 years, I believe I've had the privilege of working on projects that involve three geniuses. All right. And this young genius named Tim Burton uh, comes into our lives, and all of a sudden, everything began to coalesce because this young man out of Disney Animation had a vision as to how to make what would be absolutely revolutionary, the first dark and serious comic book superhero movie, how to make it work for people who weren't comic book readers, who were over the age of 12, adults globally, in a way that could transcend not only borders, but cultures. And when I got the call from the Warner exec saying, we'd like you to sit down with this young man, Tim Burton, and uh, talk to him about Batman and let us know what you think. So he came to them wanting to do Batman and they had to come look you up? No, they, they, they found him and brought him in and pitched him on the possibility of doing Batman. Okay, great. And so the first thing they did, and they found him because he, he had done, at that point, yeah, I remember now, they showed me the fine cut of Pee-wee's Big Adventure. Oh, sure. Yeah. And I saw that movie. I came out of there and I said, all right, this is a guy who it is the most imaginative combination of direction and art direction that I think I've ever seen. I said, I absolutely want to meet this guy. So Tim and I had a series of three lunches. And I was, first of all, I was very surprised to find that he wasn't a comic book guy, wasn't a big Batman fan since he was a kid. Um, And it was my job to indoctrinate him properly into the world of Batman, which meant for me, keep him far away from all the crazy, silly (laughs) camp stuff and only expose him to the darkest and most serious Batman stuff. So from my own collection, I exposed him initially to the first 11 issues of Detective Comics with Batman which was when he operated solo and when Robin made his first appearance. Mm-hmm. Batman number one, which was the first Joker story and the first Catwoman story. Then I gave him a set of all of the Denny O'Neill, Neil Adams, Batman stuff from the 70s, 
which returned Batman to his darker roots and introduced Raj al Ghul and his daughter Talia along the way. And then I gave him what at that time was what I thought was one of the most highly stylized interpretations of a dark and a darkly romantic Batman, uh, which was the um, Seed Engelhart Marshall Rogers run that they did. And, and that was what I gave him. By the end of the third lunch, I was absolutely convinced this is the guy. That's awesome. And he had a vision as to how to do it. Yeah, he delivered. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. He delivered. And you, you know what the epiphany was? It, the, the epiphany was, it came with, with two things. Number one, he said to me, first of all, Gotham City has got to be the, the third most important character in this movie. I remember hearing him doing that, saying that, yeah. Yeah, from the very opening frames, if we can't get audiences to suspend their disbelief and believe in Gotham City, they will never be able to believe there's a guy who would get dressed up as a bat and chase a guy that looked like the Joker. We'll only get laughs. And he was right about that. And the importance of world building. Whenever you're doing um, a genre like the kind that we play in, Number two, which was the, the shock of all shocks, was when he said that, Michael, what you have to understand here is if we're going to do this seriously and don't want to get unintentional laughs from the audience, this movie is not going to be about Batman. <laughs> and I probably turned white as a ghost and my jaw dropped a mile. I said, what are you talking about? He says, this movie has got to be about Bruce Wayne. He said, if audiences do not believe that this is a man, a young man, so driven, so obsessed to the point of being psychotic, they will never believe that a guy could be dressed as a bat doing what he does. And he was absolutely right about that. And since then, whenever anyone, whether it's in an interview, when I'm doing Q&A at a Comic-Con, whatever it might be, they'll ask me, well, who's your favorite uh, actor who played Batman? Who's your favorite Batman? And I said, you're asking me the wrong question. The, the mm -hmm. only question asked is, who's your favorite Bruce Wayne? Right. I said, you know, if you look at everybody's Batmans, within a 20% radius, they're kind of similar enough. Sure. And there's a lot of stunt underneath those uh, masks and, uh, and capes. But if you look at each one's Bruce Wayne, they are completely different from each other. Completely. That's a great point. And, and that really is true very true and i think the nolan films were are sort of an inversion of that right where the the point is that the bruce wayne character is the mask as opposed to the the you know the, the mask being the mask oh i've believed that since i read my first batman comic book that had his origin story in it great to me sure. it was always crystal clear that the second those bullets struck down his parents and that kid is on his knees over their bloody bodies as the bad guy, you know, runs off, that kid at that moment sacrificed not only his childhood in order to make a commitment for the rest of his life, even if it meant walking through hell for the rest of his life, to get the guy who did this and to get all the bad guys. He, Bruce Wayne died with those two bullets. Right. He was no longer Bruce Wayne from the moment he made that commitment. And Bruce Wayne is the disguise as far as I'm concerned. So um, what, what Chris Nolan, who is one of the other three geniuses <laughs> I've had the privilege of being involved in projects with, 
what, what he set out to do was to convince audiences that Bruce Wayne could be real today, that this could really truly happen and set it up as, as a journey, kind of like a lost horizon journey of self-discovery by a young man who was suffering from post-traumatic distress syndrome. And, mm-hmm. um, and he made us all believe in this life journey that he was on, that someone could go through all of this hell and learn all of these things and dedicate himself and come back and, and put on, the, whether it's uh, spandex or armor, uh, you know, put it on and go out and do what he's doing. Right. So uh, that to me was pretty miraculous. So that leads into my other question, well, tangentially at least, uh, that goes back to, you know, right when you decided to buy the rights to Batman. And I was wondering, you know, you're, you're a motion picture, motion pictures attorney. And do you, was the decision, did you feel like, you know, you saw a business opportunity? Were you going to buy Batman regardless of the cost? How did, uh, how did that, you know, boiling point come to be? Had nothing to do with business. It had to do 100% with passion. Um, you guys have to understand, I, I learned to read from comic books before I was four. Wow. By the time I graduated high school, I had over 30,000 comic books dating back to 1936 uh, that filled up my dad's garage. He never <laughs> once got his car in the garage. I went to the first, I went to the first Comic-Con ever held on the planet Earth. July 64 in a flea bag hotel in downtown New York, 200 of us showed up at the first Comic-Con. Um, I started writing for fanzines when I was 13 because I lived an hour outside of New York and found out that all the creators and writers and artists and editors of comic books from the 30s to the 60s either lived in Manhattan or they lived in northern New Jersey or they lived in uh, Long Island. And... Um, I went to every comic book company, met every creator I could, took the DC Comics tours on Tuesdays, um, hung out at the Marvel office in the lobby. Um, they had no tours, but I would just sit there with comic books. And whoever went in and out of that office, I would jump up and ask them to autograph my comic books. That's awesome. So um, <laughs> That's I'm, so cool. <laughs> I, I'm the proud owner I'm the proud owner of a 1943 issue of All Winners Comics, number 18, autographed by Jack Kirby wow. and two FedEx delivery men. Oh, man. <laughs> <laughs> now, uh, with Dinosaucers, the story, a lot of the, the setup for all of that is told in the intro. Uh, was there ever an origin episode that was filmed or any discussion about you know, setting it up or just can just consolidating it to the intro of the show. It had to be in the intro of the show because at that period of time in the television industry, the syndicated stations all over the country, all over the world um, would never commit to running things mm-hmm. in a certain chronological order. Right. They were just going to run episodes when they ran them mm-hmm. and they had no regard for any type of continuity. So um, we couldn't do that. We, we had to set it up at the beginning of every one and everything we do. I think we did one two-parter we got away with. <laughs> but everything else was, um, was as is uh, that could be shown independently. Right. We were wondering about that when you have cases where uh, they're going back to Hollywood again and there's no mention of them already being in Hollywood before. 
Yeah, we were just kind of hoping that that kids four to ten wouldn't wouldn't realize that. <laughs> oh, of course, of course. I mean, the the tone of the show is overtly very silly, and I think that's what we connected with the most when we were watching. We we were having the most fun when the episode was just sort of letting loose. What, what was our favorite? The one we really the, liked was the cave the, boy. Well, there's the one where David gets turned into a cave boy, and there's one where they all play a baseball game together, and. Yeah. They're just totally off the wall, and, and we were that's what we were like really connecting with the most. It was so much fun. Well, um, I think the first episode I ever wrote was that one, Take Me Out to the Ball Game. Um, I, did, I did two treatments, Take Me Out to the Ball Game and The First Snow. And those two treatments were what we used to sell the show and became our first two episodes. Um, Take me out to the ball game. I wanted to show that if dinosaurs showed up super intelligent from outer space, they still would have no real understanding of humans and what Earth was like as compared to their sister planet. And um, so the idea of them encountering snow for the first time or what baseball was or the fact that a diamond did not always mean a glittery <laughs> expensive right. gem. Oh, the wordplay in this show and, is uh, fantastic. Is this the did the is this the one that had the huckster? Oh yeah. yeah, yeah. Genghis Rex gets sold the Brooklyn Bridge by a by a, a southern man with <laughs> I a very much love that. <laughs> <laughs> and that's where we wanted our humor to come from. Mm-hmm. That that was the angle that we wanted to play up for for humor, as opposed to just slapstick and stuff. And of course, um, now in the dinosaur revival. Uh, that starts on August 8th. Um, we're doing it a little bit differently. Uh, I am now aging this up and I am now moving them into the realm in terms of tone uh, to Transformers and uh, Jurassic Park and more in that arena. Cool. Sure. Can you talk about what it's been like bringing it back and altering it? Yeah, um, I, I certainly can. Um, you know, one of the one of the things that um, saved me as a comic book fan was back when I was in seventh grade. Um, I was starting to feel that I was outgrowing comic books. Um, Superman, Wonder Woman, Aquaman, all of a sudden they were getting maybe a little cardboard, a little stereotype, a um, little bit juvenile. Uh, you know, how much more could I see um, Aquaman read about him yelling great guppies while he's talking <laughs> to octopus or Wonder Woman balancing Wonder Tot and Wonder Girl on her head, um, Superman falling in love with a mermaid. <laughs> and then in seventh grade, Marvel um, blasts onto the scene. And I suddenly felt that rather than my starting to give up comic books as I got more interested in girls and other things, um, that comic books were now starting to grow up with me. Yeah. And slowly but surely, they were becoming more mature, more sophisticated, cooler. And every time I read a Stan Soapbox, I felt Stan Lee was talking directly to me, not talking down to me, and that I was part of this subversive fandom cult that nobody in the real world knew what we were up to, what we were doing. And it was just this, like this cool secret thing going on with comic books. Mm -hmm. And, um, and, and right now 
this is going to be dinosaurs growing up with us and giving us an opportunity to be commercial in this day and age in a way that will appeal to multiple generations. When I got the rights to Batman, part of the way I sold it, I said, this is going to be entertainment that a parent can share with a kid or a grandparent can share with a grandkid. And for the kids, it's new and exciting. And for parents and grandparents, it's nostalgic and exciting, but it can be a shared experience. And that's what I want out of the revived dinosaurs. That's interesting to hear you say that. You know, part of the way you were telling your story has as how you were coming up with it and, um, you know, to tell as a story to tell your kid and kind of reflecting against the things that he was enjoying uh, felt very similar to the to the story of Winnie the, the, you know, the inception of Winnie the Pooh and Christopher Robin. And I bring that up as a to similarly mention the fact that, you know, once you create this beloved timeless thing, then it does become this this passing of the torch between generations that everybody, you know, grandparents to parents to kids to grandkids are all sort of experiencing through their own through their own um, time frame and love of the material. I think that's super cool. And I think it's really important. You know, back in the 80s, I had a little daughter. And it was important for me that Sarah not simply be part of the Secret Scouts, being told what to do and following the boys. Right. She had to take a leading role. And um, a lot of the brain work that went into the Secret Scouts emanates from Sarah. Um, and that was a little bit ahead of its time back then, unfortunately, uh, for mankind. But um, today you will see it, it is definitely Sarah who takes the lead, but that the Secret Scouts are now international. There are Secret Scouts all over. I've made it into an organization a little bit like Greenpeace. <laughs> nice. And there's uh, a new character, uh, Tian, who is from Beijing. And there are Secret Scouts from different cultures and different countries working together for pro-social causes and certainly centered on um, climate change and global warming. So... Um, I think thematically we're very relevant and in terms of making sure it had a contemporary feel to it, that's all been very important. The secret scouts are all a little bit older now. Uh, They're all college age uh, students and the tone is different because the tone does go back to transformers and um, uh, Jurassic park. So in terms of the setup, You know, back in the 70s, uh, NASA launched Voyager, Mm -hmm. which which was to be the first spacecraft to leave our solar system. And it had a record on board, a gold record, that had the voice of President Jimmy Carter sending greetings to whoever might one day find this. And it detailed everything possible about Earth and how Earth operates. And the opening for the new Dinosaurs comic book uh, and which will lead into the graphic novel is Voyager ticking away out there in outer space when all of a sudden it is slowly enveloped by an old giant um, spaceship hmm. in the form of a Tyrannosaurus Rex. And inside on the slab, they laser beam open poor little Voyager that's still beeping (laughs) and they get the record and you hear Jimmy Carter's voice. And what they then get is an open blueprint 
to everything about the world, its defenses, its military, and they realize as much as in trouble as Reptilon is, they now have a place they can invade, do a massive invasion, and get their slave labor, get their food supply, get their water supply, and um, and that's what precipitates this whole thing. Right. So it is... It, it is. It has more of a scientific feel to it. It has more of a threatening feel to it. The Tyrannos are not the buffoons they were previously. There's still humor in it. Believe me, there is humor in it. <laughs> oh, good. <laughs> but um, it's, a different, it's a different type of humor. And, um, and once again, I'm just picturing, can you imagine a scenario, a live-action movie, of G.I. Joe versus Jurassic Park, where they're using bazookas and F-35s and everything to fight a massive humanoid dinosaur invasion (laughs) um, that's taking place simultaneously in America, Beijing, and in different spots, kind of like a War of the Worlds. That's awesome. I'm there for it. uh, Now, you you guys are way too young to remember this great movie, which you should find on Netflix. It was called War Games. Oh, Oh, I've, I've seen it. It's a wonderful movie. All right, so you go back to War Games or even the tone of E.T. when the mysterious um, secretive government guys were after all of them. Mm, right. That's kind of the tone. And the War, and the war Games thing is kind of the, the secret scouts now and their relationship because there is a military organization after the scouts. Um, so it's not just about scouts and dinosaurs. There are some military and political organizations around the world that are getting into this, and everybody's in jeopardy. That's great. Yeah, that sounds really fun. Do you do you have a kind of an? Is this comic book sort of an ongoing plan, or is it like a limited run? What, what's your What's your vision of how it goes moving forward? Here is the current vision. We're, um, the first story arc is five issues, and then it will be collected as a graphic novel. I actually wrote it as a three act graphic novel following a screenplay structure. Mm but uh, figured out how to divide it up into five separate um, comic books. Um, Then my plan is for a second story arc that um, it is my hope would be written by Diane Duane. Oh, that is my dream. Um, But so that's where I think we're going to head on the publishing side. And my goals are to number one, uh, get the original series released on a beautiful uh, DVD Blu-ray collection. Oh, oh yes, so please. Yeah. Uh, number two, um, possibly get more new animation done. And the main objective is um, to sell this as a franchise, and I already have studio interest in this, as a live-action um, feature film. Well, that's very cool. That would be incredible. Yeah. Now you you work with Andrew Andrew Peepoy on this one, and uh, I I remember I looked up the information about the comic, and it totally took me back about twenty years because when I was a kid, I read so many. I mean, I have like a hundred or two hundred of these Sonic the Hedgehog comics in my apartment right now, and he did a ton of the inking on that. Did you guys meet at Archie? Is that is that what happened or? Uh, Andrew and I. When did we first meet? I think it was before then. I think. Um... When Andrew was first starting out in the business, I think he introduced himself to me at some New York or San Diego Comic-Cons, and we stayed in touch. And then he sent me what he was doing with Archie and Katie Keene, Betty and Veronica. And 
Um, we both wound up doing some work at Archie at the same time. I don't know if you guys know that I wrote Archie Gets Married. Yeah, I've, I've actually read that. Yeah. <laughs> All right. And which ultimately became a slipcase coffee table book that Harry Abrams put out, which, which was wonderful. Um, and those issues I wrote, which was Archie like 600 to 607 with a married story arc, um, became some of the best-selling Archie comics in history. Mm-hmm. Oh. And it changed the nature of the way the company was operating and doing business and developing Archie stories. They then asked me to create a magazine for them, which I did called Life with Archie, and um, continue the, adve- the married adventures of, uh, of Archie. And um, Yeah, if you've ever been in a grocery store, you've seen it. <laughs> Yeah, it got, it got great coverage. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I wrote the outline for the first year, wrote the whole first issue, and then Paul Kupperberg came in and wrote mostly everything after that and did a splendid job with that. So Andrew and I uh, wound up at Archie parties and stuff together, and we stayed in touch. I said, I'd love to find the right vehicle to work with you. And then when the dinosaurs thing came up, Lion Forge, the publisher, said to me, uh, are you familiar with the work of Andrew Peepo? I said, oh, my God, absolutely. <laughs> I said, I'd love to have him do this. Let me talk to him. And then Andrew and I got our heads together and started the design work. And Andrew totally got into my head. He knew exactly what I was looking for about Reptilon, the lava dome, the tar pits, um, how we we're going to mm-hmm. costume these creatures, how we were going to build the spaceships. And... Um, this goes so far beyond just drawing 24 pages of content an issue. Um, you know, he had to do massive amounts of work over over months before we got started. And he did an incredible job. That's great. Yeah, I'm excited to read it. it it's is, is it having a wide release? Am I going to be able to go to my local comic book store and grab this thing? Or is it am I going to need to go digital? No, you're supposed to be able to go to your store and do it. Now, I do know from some comic book stores, and I won't kid you, that first they take care of their Marvel and DC stuff, and then with whatever's left over, they order uh, a couple of copies here and there of other things. Right. Unless people go to the comic book stores and say, I want this. Yeah. You know, get it on my list, get it in my box, and uh, I want every (laughs) issue of this. So it's the kind of thing, I think, when you're not working with one of the big boys, the fans need to ask and the fans need to raise their voice and mention something so that enough copies get ordered by individual stores. You know, and I feel for the store owners. Sure. You know, they're the heart and soul of this business, but, you know, they got to be very, very careful. Oh, and the price margin is, is next to, you know, is, is bone thin. Yeah. Right, right. Um, but uh, I'm going to do whatever I can to promote it and advertise it. And ultimately, I really do believe um, the quest has begun for this to um, make a comeback on the live action feature stage and in animation. And uh, it's going to be pretty amazing. That's so wonderful. Michael, thank you so much for talking to us today. Yeah, it's been a pleasure. This is incredible. It is a pleasure. I, I have to tell you, you know, I do so many interviews and so many of them are with reporters or interviewers who are outside the scope of what we fanboys uh, <laughs> are thinking about doing. And I really appreciate, A, I can tell your passion for this, your knowledge base, the kind of questions that you ask. This was a lot of fun for me. And uh, and I thank you for the opportunity to spend some time with you today. Yeah, yeah right this is amazing. And I'm going to go buy that comic as soon as I can. I'm going to try and get my store to order that thing. 
Yeah, and uh, listeners can also definitely check out uh, the TED Talk that you did and your book, The Boy You Love, Batman. Uh, both are fantastic. Great. And I'd like to formally yeah. apologize for accidentally saying the phrase bone thin. <laughs> <laughs> Being a real bonehead. <laughs> you, sh- you should be writing. You should have been writing for our cartoon show. <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you so much for being our special guest Asaurus today. <laughs> we can do this all day. <laughs> yeah. The dinosaurs are leaving, Bossasaurus. Well, follow them. Okay, there you have it. We did this very exciting interview. Crap, that was so cool. Uh, maybe this is the beginning of a new chapter in Saturday Morning Tuesdays where we... <laughs> We start where getting... we're now big shots. <laughs> yeah, we're going to pull those big interviews. I finally tracked down Chucky e. Levy and asked him about all of his songs. <laughs> God, that would be a fun get. Oh, boy. We can't, we can't get too big for our britches. Uh, look, if this is your very first time listening to anything from our podcast because you came here from uh, one of our very savvy promotions... <laughs> <laughs> you, you you got that dinosaurs SEO and you, you showed dug it up, up here. out of whatever whatever corner of the internet we managed to bury this six <laughs> inches deep. Then, uh, you know, I, I feel like uh, I should mention uh, just sort of what we do here on our show. Generally, is uh, we we watch a bunch of different old '90s and '80s cartoons, uh, frequently episode by episode. Uh, just sort of uh, watching it with an adult lens, and we do use some adult language. So if that sort of uh, so oogs you out, if that if, if that oogs you out. Yeah, uh, you know, just just know that. But we have a lot of fun. Our show is uh, weekly. We haven't missed a week yet. Knock on all the wood. Uh, currently, right now, we have a summer of specials going on. We 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 will usually do like a monthly special, sort of a one off on a different show that we might not want to watch too much of. <laughs> and uh, and so we've got a we've got a whole month's worth of special episodes. It's a perfect time to jump on and see if you like what we're doing. Yeah, you can also find us at our website, sadmtuesdays.com. Yep, and we're on all the social medias. Uh, we, you can subscribe to us wherever you think you find podcasts and such. Uh, and, man, I I just got to say thanks again to Michael Uslan. That was so yeah. cool of him to come on. It was amazing. It was fantastic. Yeah, he did not have to do that. <laughs> and the fact that he did is fantastic. <laughs> Nor donate as much of his time as he's did. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, we got a lot of cool stuff from this. Uh, very excited. All right. Well, Austin, I think it's time you say that, that thing you say at the end of every episode. Yeah, that thing we always say, that thing we definitely always say every time is, thanks so much, Michael Uslid. <laughs> we yeah. say it every time, and we always mean it. Well, this is really the first time that's been relevant. <laughs> well, you know what? We say it more abstractly, usually, it's a, <laughs> as, a sort of, as a sort of prayer before entering the world for the day. <laughs> thanks, Michael Uslin. May a meteor not strike me down today. <laughs> <laughs>